Hey there, Soundtrack fans, David Collins here. Before we begin the Soundtrack show, I am thrilled to share a special announcement. We're launching a Soundtrack Show merchandise store, featuring t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and so much more, all through a collaboration with How Stuff Works and TeePublic. Just go to www.tpublic.com slash the soundtrack show to see our latest designs and grab some swag to show your love and support for not just this show, but for soundtracks and music in general. Be sure to check back often for new designs and special deals. And follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. And now, on with the show. The Soundtrack Show with David W. Collins is about to begin. The soundtrack to Back to the Future, like the movie itself, is a Mr. Fusion of styles. Part orchestral score and part song score, the music takes us on an epic journey through time while keeping us grounded in relatable teenage struggles. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we're taking a look at the soundtrack for Back to the Future, a movie from 1985 by Universal Pictures, directed by Robert Zemeckis, with a film score by Alan Silvestri. Well, Alan Silvestri, and also Huey Lewis in the news, and Lindsey Buckingham, and Eric Clapton, and the Four Aces, and Fess Parker, and Etta James, and, well, you get the picture. It's part orchestral score, but also part song score. Today, on this episode, we're going to be mostly focusing on the orchestral score, but we'll also start with some background information, and a few fun stories that will lead us to the creation of Silvestri's memorable score. A little while ago, I released an episode called The Music of Super Mario Brothers, And in it, I discussed the popular culture of 1985 quite a bit. If you haven't checked it out, I would be humbled and honored if you decided to take a listen. But I thought it would be nice to give us a refresher on 1985 to help us get a glimpse into the creative process that went into this movie and its soundtrack. Ronald Reagan, a former movie star, was president of the United States in 1985. The world was just winding down from Star Wars fever, having seen Star Wars and Star Trek films rule the summer box office all through the early 80s and late 70s, not to mention Indiana Jones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Chuck Norris, and Sylvester Stallone action films, and more. And with all of that, movie music had also changed. Song scores were in high fashion, as were drum machines and synthesized scores, as the invention and wide adaptation of MIDI, something we haven't discussed yet, but we will. MIDI made that kind of music so much easier to produce and much more interesting, so you had that going on in the 80s. MTV, or music television, had hit its stride by 1985, 
and along with FM radio, practically defined youth culture in the 80s. With the explosion of hip-hop just around the corner, but not yet as mainstream as it would become, music videos in 1985 by Madonna, Van Halen, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, David Bowie, Def Leppard, The Police, Pat Benatar, and yes, Huey Lewis and the News dominated television waves, while their music dominated the airwaves. The Sony Walkman changed the way people listened to music. It was now a personal, private listening experience, even when you were out in public. What's so commonplace now with earbuds and smartphones was brand new in 1985 with Walkmans and cassette tapes. TV sitcoms were huge. Cheers, Growing Pains, The Golden Girls, The Facts of Life, Night Court, Different Strokes, The Cosby Show, yikes, Silver Spoons, Webster, Punky Brewster, Mr. Belvedere, and yes, Family Ties, starring a young Michael J. Fox. Those were all over primetime TV. And, important to this discussion, with successes like Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T., Steven Spielberg was now more than just a movie director. He founded Amblin Entertainment, which is still on the Universal lot to this day, and started producing projects under the banner of Steven Spielberg Presents. One of his first protégés was a young director right out of USC named Robert Zemeckis, who got the attention of Spielberg due to his amazing student film called A Field of Honor. Here's a quote from Spielberg, quote, He barged right past my secretary and sat me down and showed me this student film. And I thought it was spectacular. With police cars and a riot, all dubbed to Elmer Bernstein's score for The Great Escape, end quote. You know, I love featuring Spielberg quotes because he always brings up music. It's great. But interestingly enough, success eluded Zemeckis early on in his collaboration with Spielberg. He kept making films that Steven Spielberg would produce, but they'd be commercial flops. He even wrote a script for Spielberg, along with his longtime collaborator, Bob Gale, for a Spielberg-directed flop called 1941, starring the late John Belushi. By the way, the film score for 1941 was written by John Williams, and it's wonderful, and features a really superb march, among other great musical moments. But Zemeckis just kept at it, and Spielberg never lost faith in him. Zemeckis and Bob Gale had a script about a teenager who accidentally travels back in time to the 1950s, and every studio around Hollywood rejected it. Without a job, Zemeckis got a lucky break when he was hired by actor Michael Douglas to direct a movie that Douglas was starring in with Kathleen Turner called Romancing the Stone. That movie came out in 1984. Now, this is where the dream team that makes Back to the Future is assembled and where careers are made. You see, everyone thought that Romancing the Stone was going to flop. Movie executives, after seeing a rough cut, were so concerned about the movie that they even fired Zemeckis from his upcoming job as the director of Cocoon. That eventually went to Ron Howard. But to everyone's surprise, Romancing the Stone was a sleeper hit. That basically means that it didn't make a huge amount of money at first in the box office, but just kept going and going and going and made money over time. After the success of Romancing the Stone, Zemeckis now had the clout to get his time-traveling teenage movie made. Ah, but wait, there's more. Romancing the Stone wasn't just Zemeckis' big break. It also began one of the longest director-composer collaborations in Hollywood history. 
Looking to differentiate his movie from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which also opened that year, Zemeckis was in search of a composer who would have a totally different sound from John Williams. He found that composer in Alan Silvestri, who, up until that point, had mostly been known as a composer of a TV show called Chips, about two California highway patrolmen on motorcycles and their adventures. Silvestri scored 95 episodes of that show, from 1977 to 1983. Now, for our knowledge, beginning with Romancing the Stone, Zemeckis and Silvestri have never stopped working together. Since 1984, Silvestri has composed every single one of Zemeckis' films, including Who Framed Roger Rabbit, all three Back to the Future films, Forrest Gump, and The Polar Express. And beyond that, Silvestri has scored other huge films, like The Abyss for James Cameron, Predator, one of my favorite action film scores from the 80s, Father of the Bride, Van Helsing, and both Avengers and Avengers Infinity War. But it all comes back to Back to the Future, because this movie really establishes Alan Silvestri as a film-scoring powerhouse. But it wasn't without effort. Alan Silvestri was born in New York City in 1950 and grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. His family wasn't a musical family per se, but young Alan Silvestri showed a real knack for music early on in his life. He was a drummer and a guitarist as a teenager and eventually worked his way to Berklee College of Music, which happens to be my alma mater. He left Berklee after two years and hit the road as a touring musician. Silvestri ended up in Los Angeles based on a promised gig that never actually happened. So stranded there, he took up work through a songwriting friend of his who recommended him as a composer for a small film called The Doberman Gang. Silvestri was just 21 years old. And that's where his film scoring career began. Silvestri started really taking compositions seriously. He learned the piano more and more, and he started getting some real conducting experience. But he was still a long way from having the chops to do a big orchestral film score. In fact, Silvestri scored a Spielberg-produced comedy called Fandango, starring Kevin Costner, which required this large orchestral score. And he really rose to the challenge, but apparently had to work very hard to overcome struggles and get the right results. This was, after all, his first big orchestral score. And for our knowledge, most of the score that he wrote was unused. I want to pause for a second. We're talking about Alan Silvestri here, the Alan Silvestri. He's a legend. He's won a ton of awards and has written so much orchestral music over the years that has deeply moved all of us as fans and filmgoers. This right here is another wonderful example of hard work and dedication paying off. And it's a reminder to us that names like Silvestri, James Horner, John Williams, etc. may seem superhuman, but they aren't. It's their humanity that makes them wonderful composers. And yes, even they have their struggles. But overcoming those struggles and working hard is why they produce these genius results. It's something I think about often, and something I wanted to bring up right before the break. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Without Romancing the Stone and an orchestral score attempt in a movie called Fandango, Alan Silvestri wouldn't have had the opportunity to shine like he did in Back to the Future. 
But oh boy, he sure did shine. Here's a quote from Robert Zemeckis. Quote, Big, big, I kept telling Al that all I wanted was the score to be big. You make a film and you start to get a little bit paranoid that you don't have any vistas and giant shots. And Al and I had just done Romancing the Stone together, and we had jungles and waterfalls and a lot of stuff like that. So I told Al, make it big, open the movie up, end quote. It's interesting, yeah, because, you know, Back to the Future was shot on the Universal lot on a very small set and then shot around Burbank. So he self-consciously pushed Silvestri to make a really big score. It's interesting to note uh, for later podcasts, and we'll talk about where the score ended up versus his initial direction, but it's a really interesting insight into the psychology of Zemeckis. You know, I'm shooting a movie around Burbank and on the Universal lot, so I I want a big score because I'm worried that I don't have these giant Lawrence of Arabia-type vistas. Anyway, Silvestri responded to the request with great enthusiasm. Here's a quote. It's a very fundamental story, and it kind of gave us license to do this kind of overblown fantasy, old-fashioned movie score, which was a thrill, end quote. So by old-fashioned, he's of course referring to the same creative well that Lucas and Williams drew from, that classic Hollywood sound of Alfred Newman, Max Steiner, and Eric Korngold. For more on that sound and its origins, please check out my episodes on Steiner and Korngold if you haven't already. Alan Silvestri began recording the score for Back to the Future on Thursday, May 16, 1985, at the Eastwood scoring stage on the Warner Brothers lot. Though it wasn't called the Eastwood stage, it was called the Burbank Studios at that time. The whole first day, with 98 musicians in the orchestra, was spent on the 10-minute clock tower sequence at the climax of the film. The score was completed after four total days of recording, but unbeknownst to Silvestri at the time, he was far from finished. In the weeks ahead, he found himself rewriting and re-recording major sequences for the film, all based on not negative, but positive feedback. According to the liner notes on the Entrada Records 2008 Special Collection Edition of the Back to the Future soundtrack, it was Spielberg who ended up causing the musical changes. And it actually makes for a great story. Spielberg wasn't sold on the initial idea of Alan Silvestri as the composer for Back to the Future, and he, quote, expressed concerns to Zemeckis numerous times. This is screenwriter Bob Gale saying that. Here's another quote. At its first sneak preview in San Jose, the film had a temporary score comprised of music from other films. Stephen again expressed his doubts that Silvestri would be able to supply the right music. By the time of the second preview, unknown to Spielberg, Silvestri had recorded cues for about half the film. During one scene in that second preview, Stephen, seated next to Zemeckis, responded to a particular theme and told the director, now that's what your score should sound like. Zemeckis replied, that is the score, Stephen. After that, Spielberg never again doubted Silvestri's ability. End quote. Scoring engineer Dennis Sands recalls, quote, Steven Spielberg loved the theme so much that he felt more of it was needed in the score. So Alan augmented a number of the cues, and we recorded them on a second set of dates. End quote. The revised cues were recorded over four more days between June 5th and June 11th, 1985. Just three weeks before the completed film was in sneak preview. Talk about doing whatever it takes to get it right. 
I talk about going right down to the wire to get it right. But hey, you sure can't argue with the results. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. I want to chat about the main themes in Back to the Future and just really start getting into the score here. The ones that we most identify with, those are what I want to talk about. So let's take a listen to this one first. This is the main theme of Back to the Future. And then we'll go ahead with a musical breakdown. This theme, first of all, tells a great story. Remember all the way back to our very first episode titled Great Melodies Tell Great Stories? I use this theme to illustrate that. The theme has these two big interval leaps, but they are just slightly different or changed. It starts here, goes down, and then it goes back up, and it's slightly different. Again, you start here, Then you go down a fifth, or back, and when you pop back up, you're not on the fifth, you're a half step away from that. Right? You started here. So, this is uh, uh, on a tritone here, or a sharp four, which is right next to the fifth. Almost the same, but altered. So, traveling through music intervals, it turns out, alters the melody. The same way traveling through the past alters the present. Now, is that a conscious decision on Silvestri's part to actually make a melody that goes, I'm in the present and then I go back to the future and then I go back to 1985 and things are changed? Is that actually a conscious thing on Silvestri's part? Is this a poetic conceit that he secretly buried into this melody? Perhaps. Perhaps not. I actually think it's not likely that he did this on a conscious level. But subconsciously, I think he absolutely did. I mean, that's what music is. Ask yourself, how does this melody make you feel? You know, this... uh... Do you picture Michael J. Fox's wide-eyed wonder and shock and open-mouthed awe at everything he sees in the movie when you hear that theme? Does it make you want to involuntarily raise one eyebrow at some sort of pending discovery? Does it make you wonder what's going to happen next? If you answered yes to any of those, then my friends, I'm here to tell you that there are musical reasons why this melody does that to us. The first is that you go from a perfect interval or a diode like this fifth, right? You go from that fifth, which is the pillar of your house, the art deco of music, to a tritone, which is perhaps the most unique 
mysterious, and also flexible intervals in all of music. A tritone is mathematically one half, exactly one half of an octave. The halfway point between two notes of the same pitch. If this is a C and this is a C, then the halfway note between those is this tritone. It's very unsettling. I'll go back to the key that we're in with Back to the Future, which is the key of G. G, C sharp, and, and another G. Now, none of that matters if you're not into music. The thing that matters is that it's unsettling. It doesn't resolve. It begs for resolution. It needs that release of tension. In the episode of the soundtrack show called What is Music? No, seriously, what is it? We talked about music having two basic components. One is rhythm. But the important one that I want to focus on right now is the other component, pitch. There are pleasing pitches and there are non-pleasing pitches we talked about. How we experience those pitches over time, or with rhythm, is the very definition of music. So, in essence, part of the pleasure of listening to music is that it's a series of tensions and releases. A series of tensions and releases. A series of tensions and releases. Those are all cadences that I just played. The tritone is the ultimate intention, and it's begging for release or resolution. In fact, in the Middle Ages, the tritone was actually called diabolus in musica, or the devil's tone, and it was forbidden in any sacred or church music for hundreds of years. So, to park your melody on this tritone is the ultimate in melodic disruption. The melody itself represents, in Western music, change or disruption from here to here. And it's in desperate need of resolution. The melody itself is the hero's journey. Regardless of conscious intent on the part of Silvestri, as one of my favorite musicologists, Dr. Greenberg, says, it's observable, it is musically observable, and therefore it has merit, as it's just how music works. Composers create melodies that instinctively tell stories. This is the job of the composer, to find the musical essence of the story that they're being presented with and bring that to life with music. And in the case of Silvestri, he chose to do it like this. The added benefit of this melody is that it's so flexible. Now, you may think that what I described with the tritone, especially since I called it the devil's tone, you may think that what I described is dark or sinister in nature, and there are definitely examples of that melody carrying dread or sinister undertones in Back to the Future.
So that's a great example of the tritone being used in a dark way. But the tritone is actually so much more than that. There's a guy named Vincent Persichetti who wrote a book called 20th Century Harmony. I know I've brought it up before. But he actually describes the tritone as a neutral interval. Not light or dark side. Not light side or dark side. But actually neutral. And when I first read this years ago, it actually really surprised me. Because, I mean, Black Sabbath and other countless metal bands have written whole songs based on tritones. But what he means, what Persichetti means, is that the tension can be released in a major or a minor way. The tritone, because it's dying to resolve to anything else, is like a musical crossroads, and that gives it the ultimate inflexibility. Here are some examples of the melody feeling almost sweet in nature in Back to the Future. So, this is where I want to actually tell you something else about film scores in general that is extremely, extremely important in terms of future discussions on the soundtrack show. Many, many soundtracks that you may listen to. This is an important detail. Some actually would say that this detail that I'm about to tell you about is very overused in film scores. But here it is. The tritone is an important element in a scale or mode that many, many film composers use called the Lydian mode. Lydia, the name Lydia, actually means beautiful in Greek. Yes, the tritone can be beautiful, as we've discussed. The Lydian mode is kind of like a major mode, but one note makes all the difference. To refresh our memories, a chord like this chord is just a collection of pitches that sound good together. That's it. Just different pitches that sound good together. The individual pitches in those chords usually come from a collection of pitches that we call scales or modes. In this case, there we're playing a, a, a G major. This is from a major scale. You Sound of Music fans would know that. So there are two basic scales. There's major, and then there's minor. You know, one feels happy, one feels kind of sad, light side, dark side, those sorts of things. Of course, music is much more complex than that. As I'm sure you've guessed, there are many, many different scale and therefore chord types, but that's kind of our basic information. Well, the Lydian scale, or Lydian mode, is very similar to a major scale, but one note is altered. I kind of accented the altered note there. Now, as a scale, that probably doesn't sound like anything to you. It probably just sounds like, you know, whatever, a bad melody. But if scales are like letters in the alphabet, then chords are like words. And I guarantee you that Lydian words, you have been listening to these Lydian words being spoken by film composers your entire life. Here's some, here's some uh, Lydian type of chords. Thank you. 
That is Lydian. That beautiful sound. This melody from Back to the Future is a Lydian melody. Lydian is generally used to make us feel full of wonder, or maybe even sense that there's magic afoot, or give us a sense of discovery. There's something otherworldly or supernatural about it. Well, why is that? Well, because it's a very beautiful version of that tension and release that I talked about. That something else is about to reveal itself to us. Right? This this tension is so badly wanting to go back here. I want to briefly call out some other Lydian examples in film scoring to get this firmly planted in our ears. A great example from decades and decades ago is Leonard Bernstein's music for West Side Story. The melody to the love song Maria strongly features a Lydian melody and harmony. Maria That same melody, or sense of discovery, can be found at the top of a very famous melody by Danny Elfman for The Simpsons. That's actually another interesting case of the tritone being played for both lightheartedness and satirical darkness. Some more lighthearted examples can be found in the work of John Williams. His whole operatic score for E.T., for example, is based on Lydian. Another melody that's very similar, that has a Lydian quality to it, i.e. a beautiful use of tritone, is Yoda's theme from The Empire Strikes Back. Or if I did it in this key, this is actually interesting. You get the idea. They're very similar. I'll give you some musical examples of how Lydian can coexist with major scales in a lot of different melodies. Um, By the way, I almost did a whole show on this, if you can't tell, just like my DS Irae show, the Doom and Gloom show. Um, But this is less of a historical word than it is a composition technique or mode. And we'll continue to hear it in score after score. And I just thought Back to the Future is a perfect way to start talking about Lydian. But back to other melodies. Some melodies are just straight-up Lydian, like the Back to the Future melody, as well as some of the others I just played, E.T., Yoda, whatever. But some melodies are major melodies with Lydian elements in them. Here are some examples. So that Superman melody is essentially a major melody. But when you get here, right, your, your major melody. But when you get here, that is a Lydian sound because that's your tritone at work. And that gives you that tension. Another example of this is from Disney's Aladdin. A dazzling place I never knew But 
Again, that Lydian sound found inside a major or happy melody. That tritone needs to resolve on anywhere, it's time to share, that sort of thing. It's a great example of a beautiful tension. So many of you have written me asking about the main theme to this very show, the soundtrack show. It's true I wrote the theme for the show in an effort to evoke classic film scores throughout the years. And doing a full analysis of it, which a lot of you have asked me to do, um, it seems a little self-serving. But instead, I'll just relate it to this topic. I'll point out that the main theme of this show... There's a Lydian sound. But it really comes up here. Right here. That's all Lydian. That tritone. Really needs to, really needs to resolve. Just kidding. That is a Lydian sound. The main theme of this show uses Lydian in a similar manner in order to evoke emotion or that sense of longing. So, back to Back to the Future. Silvestri wrote a very flexible melody that uses that utilizes all of those approaches, light and dark, all while being a melodic representation of the story itself. It's brilliant. But that's just half of the melody. The second half, often associated with Marty McFly, our protagonist, is equally as important. To my ear, this is a much-needed release to that Lydian tension. And it's a feel-good, heroic release. It's a journey back home. Recently, we talked about Jurassic Park and its main animal melody. If you recall, I mentioned that it has what's called a plagal cadence. Da-da-da. Dum, dum, that sort of thing. Meaning it's a progression of chords that is very reminiscent of church. Well, this theme isn't quite like that, but I would call it a bit of a modified plagal cadence that's commonly found in a lot of classic rock tunes, uh, pop tunes, etc. It's this very satisfying three chord progression that feels like the familiar antidote or resolution to the unresolved, unsettling nature of the first theme. So when you put these two together, these two melodies really deliver as a response to one another. One is the challenge, and the other is the hero overcoming that challenge. Indeed, great melodies tell great stories.
Perhaps this is why Back to the Future and its music still resonates with us today. Why a movie that is so quintessentially 80s still holds its charm. We'll be back on the next episode to discuss secondary themes and all of the songs that are found in the movie. We'll also discuss how the music is used and also how it isn't. I think the musical details of Back to the Future are really going to surprise you. All of this and more on The Soundtrack Show. Thank you.